So Deuteronomy 19, and just one chapter tonight. I'm not going to cram it in. I was tempted. But Deuteronomy 19 will continue in our walk through the Word, and it's just one chapter. It's not a long chapter, but it's significant as every chapter is. I was looking back, and, and I found an old quote from J. Vernon McGee. If you know who J. Vernon McGee is, he's one of the early radio Bible teachers with that fantastic southern accent. And uh, J. Vernon McGee, talking about the book of Deuteronomy, said that this book touches life where we live it today. You know, who would have thought the book of Deuteronomy, Kadevarim in the Hebrew, this book touches life where we live it today. But then he said this, the problem today is that we have a society made up of people who are entirely ignorant of the Bible and lawmakers who are actually stupid as far as the word of God is concerned. Can I get an amen? The blunders they make in their policies are enough to cause us to weep and howl. All because they're so far from God and not following him at all. And the thing is, J. Vernon McGee said that 40 years ago. 40 years ago, he was calling it. And what we see going on today, I'm not even going to get into because it's just too depressing. But Moses spoke the words of Deuteronomy 3,500 years ago, and the relevance is astounding. Continues to be astounding to me. I, I love it. I, I guess I'm not surprised by it anymore. But that God's word is so relevant and so pertinent and nails us right where we're at. But what's happened is whether it's 40 years ago or 3,500 years ago, the human heart has remained unchanged. And I guarantee you, there were people listening to Moses' sermon nodding off. Not that, you know, if you nod off tonight, I'm just going to assume you had a long day. <laughs> but there had to be people there who were like, yeah, yeah, blah, 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 Torah, whatever, Moses, you know, not getting it. Because the human heart struggles with the sin nature and our rebellion and our desire to do other things. The human heart is the same now as it was 3,500 years ago. Good news, this word still touches life today, right where we live it. And what we get into with Deuteronomy 19 is more laws and boundaries, not to tie us down, but actually to free us up. Boundaries that give us that security and at the same time encourage care one for another so that we actually do get pulled out of our typical selfishness and love other people as we love ourselves. In this chapter, Moses moves right into now the second half of the Ten Commandments. Remember, we've been applying that Moses actually in this preached word has been going through the commandments and giving really cool and unique applications like last week, honor your father and mother, but he talked about judges and, and princes and, or, or priests and, and kings and prophets, leaders, rulers. But it's the application of honor your father and mother because it starts at home. And he continues this week as he moves into the second half, the love your neighbor commandments. And this tags us where we are. Because I'll tell you what, in this season in particular, loving our neighbor doesn't seem to be so easy to do. I want what I want. I want things to go the way I want them to go. And regardless of what's good for my neighbor, <laughs> I'm looking out for me. And I'm just... And I'm, I'm telling you, as, as a brother in Christ, I see this more in the world than I've ever seen it. 
I see it tragically more in the church than I've ever seen it. And I'm not going to harp on this, but the divisions of, of politics and everything else in the church is concerning. If I am more concerned about my certain value system outside of Scripture than I am about my brothers and sisters, something's off. And Moses, I love this, will draw us back. These are the love your neighbor commands, what I would call the horizontal commandments. The first four are the vertical commandments. And then there's a hinge commandment, the honor your father and your mother. And then it really gets into the love your neighbor commands. Remember what Jesus said, Matthew 22, 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. And then Jesus said, this is the great and foremost commandment, love the Lord your God. But he says, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19, 18. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. He sums it up. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Words that touch life right here, right where we live it today. Love your neighbor. So keep that in mind as we're thinking through not only chapter 19, but the next several chapters. And this commandment that he deals with tonight as we get into chapter 19 is commandment number six. You shall not murder. Now, anyone commit murder this week? Let me just see a show of hands here because we have a special uh, <laughs> departure for you. Okay. But murder has happened this week, hasn't it? For Jesus, yes. What? In Jesus' eyes, possibly. Oh, okay. Fair enough. In Jesus' eyes, I haven't committed murder, really. Have you gotten angry with someone? I've wanted to murder this week, but... Commandment number six, you shall not murder. Three points tonight as we outline chapter 19. Protection, permanence, punishment. Okay, that'll, that'll outline, us for it, uh, outline it for us. Protection, permanence, punishment. The protection of refuge. This is part one. Verse one, chapter 19. When the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose land the Lord your God gives you. So note right there, who's cutting off the nations? Who's driving them out? God is. This is punishment for the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the flashlights and the megabytes and all the, you know, this is, God is very seriously driving them out after 400 years of opportunity to repent. So Israel is the tool, the, the, the weapon, as it were, that God uses to drive them out. But it is the work of God when the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose land the Lord your God gives you. And you dispossess them and settle in their cities and in their houses. You shall set aside three cities for you in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God gives you to possess. You shall prepare the roads for yourself. Divide into three parts the territory of your land, which the Lord your God will give you as a possession. So that any manslayer may flee there. Now, this is the case of the manslayer who may flee there and live. When he kills his friend unintentionally, not hating him previously, as when a man goes into the forest with his friend to, to cut wood, and his hand swings the ax to cut down the tree, and the iron head slips off the handle and strikes his friend so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live. Otherwise, the avenger of blood might pursue the manslayer in the heat of his anger and overtake him because the way is long and take his life, though he was not deserving of death since he had not hated him previously. Therefore, I command you, saying, you shall set aside three cities for yourself. Now, we covered this in depth already. 
If you're with us as we study through the book of Numbers, chapter 35, most of that chapter dealt with the cities of refuge, the protection of these cities of refuge. That in an accidental slaying, in the case of manslaughter, that the, the person who committed the manslaughter, unwittingly, not desiring, not wanting to kill, this is not talking about first or second degree murder, this is accidental death, can flee to the city and find protection there, refuge in that place. But what's interesting here is Moses specifies only three. If you remember Numbers 35, he talked about six. There will be six cities, three on the west side of the Jordan, three on the east side of the Jordan. But here he specifically just talks about the three. Why? Because he's focusing right now on Israel's core. Now, if you wonder about Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and they're on the, on the eastern side of the Jordan River, and if you wonder, but didn't the Lord proclaim that they would have more land, further land? Definitely to Abraham, he proclaimed a lot of land for Israel, 300,000 square miles. And so this is the core where God is calling the people into the land. It, it's like, I want you to get rooted here, get settled here, get solidified and strengthened here, and then you're going to fan out from there. So Israel's core is what I think of it as, kind of the staging ground between the Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea. Again, the promise to Abraham extended far beyond this. But, but first things first. Moses says, these three cities in this land that God has given you, verse 8, if the Lord your God enlarges your territory, just as he has sworn to your fathers, and gives you all the land which he has promised to give your fathers, and if you carefully observe all this commandment which I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways always, then you shall add three more cities for yourself besides these three. So there's your six, three on either side. East side of the Jordan, in the regions of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they would have three cities and then three in the core of Israel. Keep reading, verse 10. So innocent blood will not be shed in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, and blood guiltiness be on you. But if there is a man who hates his neighbor, lies in wait for him, and rises up against him and strikes him so that he dies, and he flees to one of these cities, then the elders of his city shall send and take him from there and deliver him into the hand of the avenger of blood that he may die. They extradite him. So the cities of refuge are not to protect someone who's guilty of first-degree murder. They're only protection for manslaughter. So the person would be extradited back to his city, and the avenger of blood then would take his life. Verse 13, you shall not pity him, but you shall purge the blood of the innocent from Israel that it may go well with you. Extradition law. I want to add two notes to the protections of the cities of refuge that we talked about previously. Number one, note this, and it's interesting, they must be centrally located. So they have to be easily reached by anyone, wherever you happen to be in the land. There has to be a, a city of refuge within, you know, running distance that you can get to it before the avenger of blood attacks you. Remember the, the blood avenger would be a family member of the person who had been killed and by ancient law, not Torah, ancient law. That was kind of society's way of doing it. Every family had the blood avenger and that guy could go out and take out the person who did damage or harm to his family. God is settling things down here and he says, I want these cities easily reached, fairly distributed in the land, that is centrally located. Go back and look at, at verse 3 one more time. You shall prepare the roads for yourself, 
and divide into three parts the territory of your land which the Lord your God will give you as possession so that any manslayer may flee there. You shall prepare the roads, takin haderek, in the Hebrew which translates establish or calculate the distances. Roads can also mean distances. And, and that word prepare can be establish or calculate. God says, I want you to calculate the distances in the land. So you divide up the land into three parts and the distance is figured out so that these three cities of refuge are equally established in the land. Why does that matter so much? Well, obviously, so they could get there. But I see Jesus in this. I see Jesus in this. Yes, the Lord is dealing legally with his people, but he also consistently implies our refuge, that Jesus is our refuge, and Jesus is centrally located. He is equitably available to all people. Absolutely fair, God makes it possible for anyone to believe, anyone to follow, anyone to run to Jesus for refuge. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18. It's talking about the nature of God. And the Hebrew pastor says, by two unchangeable things in which is it, it is impossible for God to lie, which are his word and his nature. God based it on his word and his nature. He says, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. Note this and make a note. This is really significant. Hebrews 6.18, where he says, we who have taken refuge. Literally, that can also translate, we who have fled to refuge. So the Hebrew pastor is tapping into the cities of refuge. He has this in mind. And he's saying, look, even if you have lived a life of manslaughter, you run to Jesus. A life of, you know, we've, we've all sinned in ways that we haven't even intended to. We, we've committed murder this week. We didn't even know we did. And we have one to whom we run, who we can flee to for refuge. Jesus is our protection of refuge as we flee from our sin. Matthew chapter 5, and I'll just read this to you. Verse 21, Jesus says, you've heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Now, I'm about to spend a week with my brother, so I'm a little concerned about this. <laughs> you fool! Jesus says, it's so much more intense than the actual act of physical murder. How many relationships are killed by anger? How many relationships are murdered because two people refuse to come together and see eye to eye? Because one is just so angry with a brother, with a sister. Jesus put it this way. He said, therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar. Go first be reconciled to your brother, then come and present your offering. If you're coming before the Lord and you're there to love the Lord and you're there to sacrifice or offer to the Lord, but it's not right with a brother or sister, you go make it right. Because Jesus said, on these two depend the whole law and the prophets. Love the Lord your God, absolutely, and love your neighbor as yourself. And John makes it very clear in 1 John that you know, he who says he loves, his, he loves the Lord but he hates his brother is a liar. Can't do it. 
You know the old horrible saying, we've used it before and everybody cringes, including me when I say it. You only love God as much as the person you love the least. So leave the gift that you desire to give to the Lord and be made right with your brother or your sister and then come back and give to the Lord. Because God is our refuge and God is our strength. Psalm 46, verse 1, a very present help in time of trouble. And as I hinted at before, maybe mentioned the blood avenger, who we talked about in Numbers 35, the blood avenger, the Hadam Goel, was not God's idea of justice. It was man's idea of justice. So why does God address it? Why does he even allow it? Well, it was embedded in ancient society for the family to seek their own justice, but the Lord now steps in to protect the innocent. The Lord now puts boundaries on it. He makes law around it, non-malicious, accidental death. God says, we're not just going to have you going off and killing each other. But he went further than that. Not only did he set boundaries for the blood avenger, but he changed the nature of the Chadam Goel, the blood avenger, to the kinsman redeemer. He made the avenger the redeemer, changing the whole paradigm as played out, we'll see with Boaz and Ruth someday, if perhaps we get there. The, the kinsman redeemer, the family member who, who redeems the land, who redeems a brother, redeems a sister. And Jesus, get this, Jesus is both. Jesus is blood avenger, avenging our sin with his own blood. Sin has to be paid for. We've talked about sin must be judged, must be paid for. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. Comes and he takes that and he becomes the blood avenger. He avenges our sin before the father with his own blood and becomes for us the kinsman redeemer, redeeming us to himself. And he is easily reached and he is centrally located and he is available to all. Romans chapter 10, verse 6 which says righteousness that is based on faith speaks as follows. Paul says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up. See, that's an attitude of works. We got to go up to make this happen. Got to go down to make it happen. Got to work for it. Paul says, no, no, what, what, is, what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth. And in your heart, the word of faith that we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus, Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Paul just nails this. Jesus is our refuge, centrally located. The word is near you, the word of Christ. Jesus is right here. And it's such a beautiful picture, these, these cities of refuge, and the nearness of Jesus. And we as believers ought to know this automatically, better than anyone. We ought to know that if we're feeling distant, if we're feeling as far away and, and I can't get back to Jesus and I've been out of fellowship for a long time and, and it's, I'm, I'm striving, to, how can I ever make this right? And in the reality, you turn around. The word is near you. Oh, but God, I'm so far away. And Jesus is like, excuse me? right here, centrally located, easily available. To the non-believer, 
It's a marvelous thing about grace. You can be about as wicked as possible and repent and be saved and turn to Jesus. For you and for me, he made it that easy. For himself, it cost him everything. But he is so close to each of us, not far. Now, there's one more vital requirement related to murder in the cities of refuge. So the cities had to be centrally located as Jesus has made himself centrally located in our world for anyone to turn to him. But the land must be completely purged. And this is kind of hard for some to hear this kind of language. You shall not pity him, verse 13. You shall purge the blood of the innocent from Israel that it may go well with you. We're talking about the malicious intentional murderer, first degree murder. This guy's lying in wait to take another life. And God says, in this case, you show no pity because the land itself must be purged. Now, we'll see in a future study in Deuteronomy 21 that even if a slain body is found in a field, no murder is witnessed and no one has any idea how this person was killed. It's obviously that someone has been killed, has been murdered, but the murder gets off. We don't know where he is. We don't know who he is or she is or what they, how they did it or anything. It's kind of like Gabby right now. We're trying to figure this out. Find Brian Landry or Landry. And who, what, I, what, a, what a bizarre thing that captures the attention of the, of the nation. That's a really good example of exactly what he's talking about. We don't know for sure how this happened. We all have guesses. We all have assumptions. But the body's found slain in a field in Deuteronomy 21. And it says, if you find a slain body, well, you need to make a sacrifice for that. You got to atone for the blood on the land. You go to the closest city to that slain body and the elders of that city have to come out and make sacrifice because that slain body was found and because there's now blood soaking into the land. We talked about this also in Numbers 35. God is so serious about this that shed blood pollutes the land and the land is his and the land must be cleansed. The land, it was holy to the Lord as he's giving it now over to Israel. The land has to be purged of innocent blood. Remember Cain and Abel? All the way back at the beginning, Cain struck his brother in the field and, and killed him. And God says to Cain, Genesis chapter 4, verse 10, what have you done? He says, interestingly, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Because the very ground itself was stained with innocent blood, that blood of Abel. And the blood cried out to God. What, what would the blood of Abel be saying? Justice, I've been killed, justice. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24 says that we have come to Jesus, mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Such a powerful verse. Why? Again, because Abel's blood speaks justice, cries for fairness, while the blood of Jesus cries mercy, grace, forgiveness. The blood in the land must be purged, must be cleansed. You know what I find fascinating? Uh, if you all have seen years ago Mel Gibson's The Passion, there's one line in the movie The Passion that is in the movie in Aramaic, but it's the one line where there are no subtitles. 
Everything else is subtitled so you can see exactly what the people are saying. And they're speaking in Latin and they're speaking in Aramaic and they're speaking in Hebrew and some Greek in the movie. It's fascinating how they did that. But one line is spoken and there's no subtitle because at the time that it was made, the Jewish people who were being consulted on it were so offended. You cannot have this line in the movie. So Mel Gibson left it in, but he just didn't tell him what it was saying. And in the Aramaic, it is this verse. It's out of Matthew 27, 25. And in verse 24, it says, Pilate saw he was accomplishing nothing, and, but then a riot was starting, so he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, and no subtitle, his blood shall be on us and on our children. Which is an astounding statement. Because on the one hand, they're owning the murder of Jesus. His blood is on us then. But on the other hand, it is only by his blood on us that we're cleansed. His blood be on us. Well, his blood would be on them. And his blood ultimately would be the cleansing blood of the land itself. It is only by the blood of our blood avenger, our kinsman redeemer Jesus, that we have our refuge immediately accessible and thoroughly purging. And this is what Jesus has done. Secondly, the permanence of property. The permanence of property. And we're going to spend a few minutes on this little verse. Verse 14. You shall not move your neighbor's boundary mark, which the ancestors have set in your inheritance, which you will inherit in the land that the Lord your God gives you to possess. Now, this is significant. This is very important. Do not move the boundary mark. This is the permanence of property. Now, this little standalone law, just verse 14, is kind of stuck right in the middle. And it's interesting when you're going through Moses' preaching to ask the question, why does he put this here? He's in the midst of talking about murder, and he pops this little one in here. I would think you'd wait to apply it to command number eight, you shall not steal. Don't move your neighbor's boundary mark because you're stealing his land. Or, or you shall not covet. Commandment number 10, don't covet your neighbor's boundary. I have two, two recent examples that happened to me, interesting, with, with a whole boundary mark. One was the church boundary. That we, we, had, we had a boundary line running along the side of the church, and, and our neighbor, I won't say which side, but our, but our neighbor, actually, we're our neighbor on this side, right? So I think I just told you which side. But no, and it wasn't, it wasn't a contentious thing, but our neighbor was used to, had, had a section of land that he had been using that technically, when we looked at the boundary mark, belonged to the Bridge Fellowship when we bought the land. So we opened up Deuteronomy 19, uh, 19 verse 14. <laughs> Bro, no. No, no, we, we at that point, it's like, keep the land. That's fine. It's way out there. It's wetlands anyway. What are we going to do with it? So, but the other one was interesting. When, when I, I had been in my house a few years and I had a neighbor, again, I won't tell you which side, but I had a neighbor who... Um, who came along and wanted to set up an electric dog fence right along the boundary. I was all for the dog fence because his dog tried to get into my house several times. But he wanted to set that up. And he came to me and he said, so I'm going to do it right along here. And it was about three feet into my property. So I took him to Deuteronomy 19, verse 14. I said, bro. No, we talked about that. We went down to the end of the property, and I was able to show him where the property marker was, and it was a pole that was stuck way deep down into the ground, and it, had a, it was painted red on the top. And I said, that's, that's the boundary right there. 
And so, oh, okay, so he made it along that from boundary to boundary. But it's important today, and people still are concerned about their boundary markers. Listen, Moses is in the middle of talking about murder when he pops this single standalone verse in here. Don't move your neighbor's boundary mark. Why? Because land was everything. In ancient Israel, land was everything. It was their God-ordained, God-given inheritance. Their land was proof of the covenant itself. And the fact that they were in the covenant community, that this person's land was a proof of that significant, and it stayed in the family for generations. It was also livelihood, economically, and it was family survival. If you encroached upon your neighbor's land, you, you were killing them off, in essence. Losing land was considered a threat to a person's survival. That's how important it was. And even by the early days of Rome, did you know, in Rome it became capital punishment if you were caught moving a neighbor's boundary mark. I mentioned that to my neighbor as well. No, I didn't. I didn't, <laughs> didn't know that. Yeah, in ancient Rome, if you were caught moving it, you were subject to capital punishment. And it is historically among the greatest reasons for conflict between people and between nations. Land is a common source of war and of murder. Uh, Book of James, chapter 4, verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not the source, your, your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Deuteronomy 27, 17 says, Cursed is he who moves his neighbor's boundary mark, and all the people shall say, Amen. <laughs> Proverbs 22, 28, Do not move the ancient boundary which your fathers have set. Proverbs 23, verse 10, Do not move the ancient boundary or go into the fields of the fatherless. Hosea Chapter 5, verse 10, the princes of Judah have become like those who have moved a boundary on them. I will pour out my wrath like water. All over moving a boundary, yeah, because land was everything. There's a story in the Hebrew Scriptures. Why don't you turn over just for a moment to 1 Kings 21. 1 Kings 21, where we actually see this law violated and play out before our very eyes. Do not move your neighbor's boundary mark. 1 Kings chapter 21. I'm just going to read through this story. 1 Kings 21 verse 1. Which tells us, I'll read slowly so you can catch up. Now it came about after these things that Nabot, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard which was in Jezreel, which even today is a very fertile and fruitful part of Israel. It's a beautiful valley, the Jezreel Valley. And he had a vineyard which was in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is close beside my house and I will give you a better vineyard than it in its place. If you like, I'll give you the price of it in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, well, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. It wasn't just about a nice vegetable garden. This was his inheritance. This was his family lineage. This was his covenant proof that he's part of that community. 
So Ahab came into his house sullen and vexed because the word which Nebot the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and ate no food. Big, fat baby. <laughs> Big old baby Ahab. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said, how is it that your spirit is so sullen that you are not eating food? So he said to her, because I spoke to Nabot the Jezreelite and said to him, give me your vineyard for money or else if it pleases you, I'll give you a vineyard in my place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. <laughs> this guy's king of Israel. It's pathetic. Jezebel, his wife, said to him, do you now reign over Israel? <laughs> Aren't you the king? Arise, eat bread, let your heart be joyful. I will give you the vineyard of Nebot, the Jezreelite. This is how Jezebel works. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and sent letters to the elders and to the nobles who were living with Nebot in his city. She wrote in the letter saying, Proclaim a fast and seat Nebot at the head of the people and seat two worthless men before him and let them testify against him. You cursed God and the king and then take him out and stone him to death. Nice woman, really. Amazing. So the men of his city, the elders and the nobles who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them, just as it was written in the letters which she had sent them. They proclaimed a fast. They seated Nabot at the head of the people. Then the two worthless men came in and sat before him, and the worthless men testified against him, even against Nabot before the people, saying, Nabot cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. And then they sent word to Jezebel, saying, Nebot has been stoned and is dead. And when Jezebel heard that Nebot had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Nebot, the Jezreelite, because he refused to give you for money. But Nebot is not alive, but dead. When Ahab heard that Nebot was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Nebot, the Jezreelite, and take possession of it. Then the word of the Lord came, to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down and meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Nebot, where he has gone down to take possession of it. And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you murdered and also taken possession? See why Moses prophetically puts boundary markers right in here with murder? It's as if he knew the story was coming. And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, in the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Nebot, the dogs will lick up, lick up your blood, even yours. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? Ahab hated Elijah. We'll get into that in 1 Kings. Just couldn't stand him. And he answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring evil upon you and will utterly sweep you away and will cut off from Ahab every male, both bond and free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and because you have made Israel sin. Of Jezebel also the Lord has spoken, saying, the dogs will eat Jezebel in the district of Jezreel. And by the way, they do. It's a great story. They just... <laughs> the one belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs will eat. And the one who dies in the field, the birds of heaven will eat. Surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. And it was all over the land. 
It was all for a piece of property so he could grow veggies. Big, fat, stupid Ahab. J. Vernon McGee was right, talking about politicians. And Ahab violated this, and it was all about wanting to move the boundary, wanting the boundary, wanting the markers, wanting the land that belonged to Naboth. You know, it's interesting because we live in a day and age right now where the globalist wants to do away with boundaries. We don't need borders. What do you need borders for? Watching a mess, complete nightmare on the southern border. And by the way, this is not about an issue of compassion because I have deep compassion for the Haitians and for the, the migrants who are coming across trying to find some kind of a better life. But where there are no borders, things get out of control very quickly. And there are all kinds of people right now who are being horribly affected in the southern United States because the border is a complete mess. The globalist says we need to live in the world with no borders because really, you know, the heart of man is good. I'm like, what world do you live in? The heart of man is good? Listen, if anyone says to you, we need to get rid of borders and get rid of boundaries, you say to them, and understand if you've had that attitude, we're not the ones who came up with the idea of borders and boundaries. God is. Acts chapter 17, verse 26. Paul said, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. That is a divine thing. That they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Remember, the word is, is very near. But specifically, the land, the land of Israel. Think about the land. This is covenant land. This is land that, first of all, belongs to God. Now, granted, everything belongs to God. The whole earth and all it contains belongs to God, the psalmist tells us. But for the people of Israel, that land in particular, God chose to put his name on the land, on Jerusalem. That's his covenant land. This will play out right into the kingdom where each of the 12 tribes of Israel receive their allotment of land again. This is God's land to give and God's land to protect. The Bible makes 55 specific references to God's unconditional land covenants with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his people. 55 different references. Now, let me give you a quick example of what happens when you mess with God's land. Egypt went into decline almost immediately after the Exodus because of their treatment of the people of Israel. Assyria was taken out by Babylon not long after they devastated northern Israel and chopped up the land. Babylon was destroyed by Persia even before the Jewish captivity had ended. The Babylonians taken the people out of the land and trying to claim, lay claim to the land themselves, a land that did not belong to them. Persia that took out Babylon, Persia itself lasted only a short time. Now, Persia lasted, I believe, as long as it did because they supported Israel's right to the land. It was Cyrus, king of Persia, who sent the, the people back. And so the Persians, well, they, they were okay as long as they supported Israel. When that support fizzled, so did Persia's power. This is a consistent thing in history. Alexander the Great comes along, and the Greeks, they overthrew Persia for world dominance. And then they started to mess with Israel. Guess what happened to the Greeks, they got divided into four sections and finally they got weakened. Ultimately, Rome comes along. 
Rome's inward implosion began very quickly following the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And even faster after about AD 135, where the Roman emperor Hadrian tried to drive all the rest of the Jews out of the land and rename the land Philistine country. You Bible students and historians know this. Philistine country, Palestine. This, this just drives me nuts. I was reading, and this was, I think, out of the, um, what is it called, the Bible Project? So my, my kids are doing Liberty Online University. That's how they're doing school right now. And, and part of the Bible class relies on some videos from the Bible Project. Yeah, I know, I had a hmm myself. So I'm checking this out. And I was listening, as, as Chris was listening to one just yesterday, and it was talking about uh, the land of Israel prior to Israel coming into it and referred to it as Palestine. My friends, that is absolutely historically wrong. The land was never called Palestine until Hadrian came along and renamed it Philistine country. Palestina in the Latin. So it was called after that. After 135 AD, it was called Palestine, Philistine country. And only then is a slap to the face of the Jews. And ultimately it became Israel again. Thank the Lord in 1948 because Israel's, I believe, the proper name for the land. So Hadrian in Rome crumbled and fizzled as they tried to divvy up the land. And you can go right down through how, how people, how nations have dealt with and treated Israel has immediately and dramatically impacted the nation. Hitler's Germany is a great example. What happened to Germany after the Holocaust? The power was short-lived as Hitler's final solution was the genocide of the Jewish people. And think about this one even more, or as recently, the vast British Empire. It was said on which the sun will never set. Well, the sun went down. After the British Empire divided up the land, their promised homeland to the Jewish people, they cut it in half. I've told you this before, right? There already was a two-state solution. Do you know that? It was Transjordan and Israel. That was the, because all of that originally was promised to the Jewish people. All of what is Jordan today and Israel was promised in the Balfour Declaration of 1917, and I'm going off in history because it's just coming into my brain, but, but that was promised to Israel, all of that land. And then the white paper was written that said, nah, let's give half to the Arabs, even though the Arabs had the entire rest of the Middle East. And so they divided the land. What happened to Great Britain? All of that empire imploded, and it became a small little country as it is today. No offense to, you know, keep calm and carry on, my British friends. But... Every major power that has ever opposed Israel, every major power that has tried to move the boundaries of the land are now card-carrying members of the Where Are They Now Club. This is significant to God. It is tantamount to murder, to mess with his land. And I don't know why anyone in America thinks it'll be any different for us if we mess with the land. Joel chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 says, Behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Ju Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there. Who? All of the nations. I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. 
This is important to God. This is highly significant. Moving God-ordained boundaries is more than a human problem. It's a satanic scheme. In fact, it will be one of the activities of the Antichrist. Daniel chapter 11, verse 39 says of Antichrist, he will parcel out the land for a price. He's going to try to divide the land. No wonder Moses here connects murder with a neighbor's boundary marker. You do not mess with God's ordained land, that which he gives, that which is his. Now, in the same vein, Moses ties in the 10th commandment still in this context of considering murder and murderous things. He ties in the 10th commandment, which is, you shall not bear false witness. Part three in our study, the punishment of a false witness. Verse 15 of chapter 19, a single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. This is repeated, by the way, in the New Testament a number of times. This exact law is conscripted to New Testament and the age of grace. Matthew 18, 15 is significant. Jesus said, if your brother sins, love your neighbor as yourself. If your brother sins, go show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. That's the high standard for the church. That's where we need to function. That's how we deal with becoming aware of a sin of a brother or a sister or an offense. You go to the person. How many times have we heard this in our lives, brothers and sisters? Christians, I mean, this, this is kind of a, a standard fair verse, and we love to use it when someone's gone behind our back to someone else. But how many times have we not gone to the brother or the sister about the offense, but told someone else about it? Jesus says, no, no. You go show him, your brother, your sister, their fault in private. And if they listen, you've won. It's done. Case closed. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Now, note the standard Jesus puts on it. If you take someone with you to confront the sinful or the offending brother or sister, it needs to be a witness, two or three witnesses of the offense. If you're the only one who's seen the offense, then you need to work it out with your brother or your sister. If someone else is aware of the offense, then the two of you can go to your brother and sister, still in private, still caring for their reputation, for their heart, still trying to tend to them with the love of Christ and the grace of God. But you go to them and the mouth of two or three witnesses establishes it. John chapter 8, verse 17. Jesus said, even in your law, it's been written that the testimony of two men is true. You need at least two who have seen it, two who can attest to it. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 13, 1, this is the third time I am coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19. Doug, you'll like this one. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. That would quiet down a lot of chatter in churches. Don't even entertain an accusation. Have more than one person seen this or attest to this? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 28. 
Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Why is this significant? Because God is doing away with the ambiguity of he said, she said justice. That doesn't play with the Lord. But, but someone claims this. Well, okay, is there another witness? Doesn't play if not. It's not justice if there's not at least two or three witnesses. Verse 16 says, if a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the men who have the dispute shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who will be in office in those days. The judges shall investigate thoroughly, and if the witness is a false witness, and he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. Thus you shall not show pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. That is Torah law. Severe. It's harsh. I'm so glad we're under grace. Well, I'm glad we're under grace too. But note this. When God says, both here and earlier in the chapter, you shall show no pity. Show no pity. This is not a statement against compassion. God is saying you show no pity to those who are convicted as malicious, wicked, or evil. The convicted murderer, you do not show pity. You send them to me, God would say. And the malicious false witness, you don't show pity. You do to them what they had planned to do if they're a false witness. And this is proven, again, by the testimony of two or three. You show no pity. This is based on an ancient law. Okay, the Romans actually termed it, but it was a law that far preceded Rome. It's called the Lex Talionis. The Lex Talionis in Latin, and it's basically let the punishment fit the crime. Someone steals, from them it is taken. Someone murders, their life is forfeit. Someone pokes out a guy's eye, they lose an eye. That's the way it works. Hand for hand, foot for foot. And it was used in Rome, the Lex Talionis, but it dates all the way back to Torah law. What is God doing here in Torah? Listen, what this does is it, it serves to redirect human behavior because human behavior and the sin nature wants revenge. God redirects it to restraint. Hand for hand, foot for foot, eye for eye. This is about restraint. If you know, if I know that by poking out Jake's eye, I could lose an eye, I'm at least going to think twice about it. It's restraint. It, it slows us down. The punishment fits the crime. Human nature says, if you scratch my arm, I want a pound of flesh. You do wrong to me, I'm going to do way worse to you. And you might go, well, maybe that's your nature, Rick. I'm not like that. Oh, what do we love in the movies? We love massive revenge. We love when the bad guys who do one little thing at the beginning get blowed up by the end of the movie. Because that's something that speaks to the nature. The sin nature wants the punishment to exceed the crime. God comes along in Torah and says, no, no, we're going to have the punishment fit the crime. Restraint. By the way, we have an early example of the sin nature in the line of Cain. Guys, remember the guy, a guy named Lamech? 
Lamech. Not, this is not Lamech in the line of Seth. This is a guy named Lamech who was in the, in the lineage of Cain, and he was a boastful braggart. Listen to what he says, Genesis 4.23. He says to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me, a boy for striking me. And then he says this, if Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech, 77-fold. Someone wrongs me, I'm going to wrong them much worse. That's human nature. God says, no, you're not going to take out more than what was done. The punishment will fit the crime. But wonderfully, we do look at this through the lens of grace. Jesus comes along, he takes this law, and he redeems it so that it is no longer revenge, nor even just restraint, it's reconciliation. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's this law. But I, I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have his coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And then he gives a very simple standard for us. Therefore, you're to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's all you got to do. Just be perfect. God in Torah law is establishing standards to, to pull us back from the sin nature, restraint from the sin nature. But then Jesus comes along with all the authority of God himself being God in the flesh and says, you've heard this said, let me take it a step further. Let me show you how this really works. That's the heavenly standard. And it's tough today. It is tough today in, in an environment where loving your neighbor is more difficult now than it has been in a long, long time in this culture. To love someone who disagrees with you, to love someone who's not acting the way you would, to love someone who has opposed you, think about what Jesus said. I, many of you heard this since childhood. I heard this since I was a little kid. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the left as well. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, turn the other cheek. Turn the other cheek. No, it's not that easy. Think about it. It's not. Someone harms you. Okay. So rather than wanting my pound of flesh, rather than even restraint, okay, well, you hit me on the right cheek, so I'll hit you on the right cheek. Jesus says, no, 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 no. You be sons and daughters of your father. You act like your father acts. And if you want the standard, you look at Jesus on the cross. You look to the one who sacrificed himself, who gave everything for us. That's the heavenly standard. Words that touch our lives today 
First John chapter 1, verse 1, John said, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we've looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested. We've seen, we testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These are words that touch life. And Jesus himself is the word of life. Let's stand up together. Worship team, you guys come on back up. I said on Sunday, we never want to rush communion. We want to take our time with it. And, and I encourage you tonight, take a few minutes and, and commune with the Lord. Let this be the end point and really the focal point of our evening. You're invited in this time to touch the word of life, to touch Jesus, to reach out to our refuge, our kinsman Redeemer, And think about this, that when it comes to false witness, Jesus was more deeply affected by false witnesses than anyone who has ever lived on the planet. And his response to the false witnesses was to be the true and faithful witness of God. His response was to redeem with his blood. Mark chapter 14, verse 55 says, the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death. And they weren't finding any. They were giving false testimony against him. Many were, but their testimony was not consistent. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. But not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. The high priest stood up, and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him, saying, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven, a prophecy of Daniel that spoke of God himself. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face false witnesses against Jesus and all he did was testify to the truth. Are you the Christ? I am. I am the true and faithful witness. And then Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 12, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how is it that some of you say there's no resurrection from the dead? But if there's no resurrection from the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. 
For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they've also perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. That is, that is if the witness of Paul and the apostles was false, but it was not. Paul says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Jesus is the faithful witness at the crucifixion, his own death. Since then, we have had the true witnesses of resurrection. And that's what we celebrate in communion. It's both. It is both the death and the resurrection. It's as Paul said, and think about the phrase, we proclaim Christ's death until he comes, which is a death that did not remain. Otherwise, he couldn't come. And so, Father, tonight, as we prepare our hearts and our minds to come to the table and to share in this very, very simple little emblem, Lord, we recognize it was not simple and it was not little, the thing that you did. As the false witnesses rose up against you, lied, tried to have you condemned. Lord Jesus, what we see in this and recognize is it was your true witness that brought the condemnation of your life. It was that you testified I am and the leaders couldn't handle it. Thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming and being God among us. Thank you for testifying to the truth. Thank you for dying on our behalf. Our, our kinsman redeemer who avenged the blood of our sin on yourself. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being so near to us right here, right now, tonight. Thank you for establishing us in your covenant promise, the new covenant in your blood. And I pray as we share communion tonight that you will hear from us words of thanksgiving for what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.